Okay, friends, um, invite you to turn in your Bibles. Um, turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. And then it's also good to remind ourselves of our catechism questions for today. We're at question number five today. Um, and are there any kids in here who are doing it right now? I think maybe some, I know some kids are doing it, but they're probably down in the classroom. So this is for the grown-ups then. This is for, for all of you. So hopefully you're doing these too. If I were to ask you, how and why did God create us? What would we say? We'd say God created us, male and female, in his own image to glorify him. And that was last week's question. Today's question is, or this week's question is, what else did God create? God created all things and all his creation was very good. What a, uh, one of the fundamental teachings about who God is, is that God is the creator and ruler over everyone and everything. And we can trust in that. So uh, let's turn to now to Revelation. Revelation chapter 20. Verses 1 through 10 will be our scripture reading today. Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of our God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This is the reading of God's word. And we say, thanks be to God. Um, this passage today is perhaps one of the, the trickiest and maybe most debated passages in all of the Bible. And 
in reality, uh, if I um, if I had the if I had the choice, I probably would have skipped this passage today. <laughs> if I could be really honest, like I, I was, I have been wrestling with this passage for in reality years. I've kind of wondered about what this passage means, and I've been thinking about the different options for this passage for years. And just when I feel like I land on where I think, okay, I think I understand it. Uh, what I often like to do is I like to go and read the other perspective. And I go, well, I want to understand the other perspective. And then I'm like, huh, that's got some really good points. And then, um, and then I go, okay, but what does the other, the original view have to say about that other view? And I go back and I'm like, huh, they've got some really good points. And so, um, in full disclosure, um, this, this passage just perplexes me. That the interpretations are so diverse and yet uh, can be so equally strong, uh, I'm not sure I can stand up here and confidently say this is the one interpretation. Okay? Maybe that's disappointing uh, for you. Uh, but this is one of the passages of scripture I seem to kind of hold uh, somewhat lightly. I, I don't know. And so it, uh, it's kind of humbling to kind of admit that today. Uh, but this is how I feel about this, this passage. So let me, so my, my approach then today is, well, then let me kind of present all of the views of this passage. And then kind of give you the two that I think are the strongest. And then... We can kind of teach through and explain what, uh, why those, you know, what, what it means. And then I could kind of hopefully just summarize just a couple of reflections or thoughts based on each one. How, how does that sound for you today? So here are the, here are the four views of Revelation. But before I do, let me, let me get uh, a Revelation chapter 20. Before I do, let's, let's pray, shall we? Father God, we um, we do want to express our agreement and the sentiment that you express through Isaiah at the end of his prophecy. Um, we may we be like those who tremble at your word. And so, God, we tremble at your word, not uh, only in the sense of just fear and awe that these are your words and that you have spoken them to us, that this truly is a revelation that you, through Jesus Christ, have given to John and given to us. Um, so, God, we, we tremble not only at the fact that you have spoken, but we, we tremble when we uh, don't fully feel like we can understand what this passage is saying. And so, God, I pray that you just bring us clarity of thought. I pray that you uh, give us open minds uh, and help us to kind of understand and make sense. And that whatever um, view that we hold, that there is something that we could take away from this, some word of encouragement um, that would strengthen us in our walk as Christians. And so, um, God, we ask that you do that today and that you give uh, that you provide words for me today. And um, we pray this in the mighty name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen and amen. Um, 
So let's look through the four different views, the four primary views on what this passage is. Um, this is these views are referred to as millennial views. Okay, this is not to be confused with a certain generation segment of our population born with between year X and year whatever. Right? What what is it a millennial? By the way, somebody born between when and when? <laughs> somebody pointed to Kristen. <laughs> it, what's the range? Okay, so so born in the, the early to mid-80s or later, you're a millennial. Okay, any millennials in here? Just raise your hand. Self-identified. <laughs> uh, okay, I spent way too much time talking about that because that's not what this is about. These are not about millennials here. The, this millennial is the, um, the, it's a Latin term meaning thousand years. That's the Latin phrase for a thousand years. Mille uh, anus, meaning a thousand years. And so, uh, so millennial means a thousand years. And that comes from a term that occurs six times in these verses that we read. Six times. It so speaks about a thousand years. Satan being bound for a thousand years. Christ reigning on earth with saints for a thousand years. And then at the end of the thousand years, Satan being released. And so let me present to you these millennial views. Now, the views are uh, to be understood as where does Christ's return happen in relation to this thousand years? OK, so here's the, the first view is called the premillennial view. And maybe you might be able to see this um, the, up at the top. This is classical premillennialism. So premillennial then means that, remember, it's the relationship of Christ's second coming to this thousand years. Christ's second coming will come before pre-thousand years. So on this diagram here, you would see this, um, this church age, the age in which we are in now, and which we are experiencing tribulations and trials in the world now. And then Christ will return for us in the future. Christ will return. He'll catch up believers to be with Christ. So that's the believers going up. And then believers in Christ coming to earth. You have the resurrection of believers and the new earth. And then you have this millennium that we read about here in Revelation chapter 20. This thousand year period of Christ's reign on earth. Uh, between his coming and his judgment or final battle that you see with uh, Satan and other uh, all of the nations and the forces that are brought against Christ. Okay, And then at the end of that, we have Satan is defeated. Then you have the resurrection of unbelievers and the judgment. So if we were to kind of put add to this passage, where does this passage fit in in this diagram? If you could see, Satan is bound here at the beginning at, you know right when Christ comes Satan is bound then you have this thousand year period in the future um, after Christ's second coming and then Satan is released then there's this the final battle that we read about in the second half of our passage and then you have the resurrection and judgment um, and then the eternal state so this is classic pre-millennial 
Christ's second coming is before this millennial period. Okay? There's a variation of this called uh, pre-tribulational, pre-millennialism. And this, basically the basic structure of what we just saw is the same. They just add some uh, other little details here that Christ's coming, um, there's a seven-year period Christ kind of comes, but he doesn't come all the way down. Believers are brought up. They're taken up into the sky. There's a seven-year period, and then Christ comes back, and then the millennium begins. And so it would be kind of like here, this, you know, but the basic structure is the same. So sometimes referred to uh, pre-tribulational, pre-millennialism is referred to as, as dispensationalism. Uh, okay? So that's a variation of the pre-millennial. Um, the other uh, second view, we'll call it the second view, is post-millennial. Okay? So when does Christ's return happen in relationship to this thousand years? It comes after the millennium. So in this scheme here on the timeline, you have the church age. And then at some point, Satan in church history, Satan is bound. Um, and then you have a, a literal thousand years. Although some do see the millennium as symbolic. Some post-millennialists would see it as symbolic. So you'll have this uh, thousand year reign and then Christ comes. So see how this is different, right? You have Christ coming post-millennium. And so the idea behind this view is that as the church, as the gospel is expanding in the world, uh, the church is spreading throughout the world with its message. Um, you're starting to see the kingdom of God expanding on earth and Christ's reign over portions of the, the world where Christ is reigning and Satan is kind of nowhere to be found in certain cultures, that's beginning to kind of expand over the earth. And then at the end of that period of time, Christ comes back. This uh, view was kind of popular at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. Um, since World War I, uh, that kind of did a number on post-millennial views, right? started to see that maybe the, the, the world isn't getting better. We're not seeing Christ's reign actually taking place on earth as they picture it in political kind of realm. So, uh, so that's the post-millennial view. Um, and so pre-millennial, um, a pre-tribulational pre-millennial, it's two kind of variations. Then you have post-millennial. And then here's another one. The third one we'll deal with is called uh, amillennial. Amillennial. Now, uh, which is a bad term. A lot of people who kind of hold this view go, it's gotten this name amillennial, but that seems to suggest that they don't believe in a millennium. Um, so that's because the, the ah, you know, would negate millennium. And so they go, this is not really true. We do believe uh, of what John is speaking of here in, uh, in this millennium, this thousand years. They would just understand the millennium as being uh, more symbolic. And that it's not a, a, one, a literal 1,000 years, that it's a time reference, like many other time references in uh, Revelation, has a symbolic, uh, symbolic aspect to it, right? Uh, kind of think back to when we were looking at the letters, and I forget which church it was, but the, when, uh, when he says, oh, and you're going to uh, be thrown into jail for 10 days. Okay, was that a literal 10 days? We saw that he was borrowing that language from, from Daniel 
Um, and, um, or was it 40 days? It was 10 days, right? And so you, you started to see like these, these time references seem to kind of have a symbolic thing. That's what the, the, this amillennial position would say, that this thousand years is a way of speaking of this, uh, this uh, very long but unspecified period of time. And so, uh, and they would say that it is a reference to the, the church age. So Revelation chapter 20 verses 1 through 6 is describing now. So that is the, um, the amillennial view. So let me give you the two that I bounce back and forward between. And they're not even close. <laughs> they're not even very similar at all. Uh, I kind of bounce between. And so, by the way, uh, I should add this. The amillennial view, then Satan then would have been bound with um, bound, so to speak, with Christ's resurrection, his his crucifixion and his resurrection and his ascension. And so uh, so it kind of goes back to that time right before uh, he's he's ascended into heaven. And then so Satan is kind of bound. The Holy Spirit comes. So this is this amillennial view. So the two that I kind of uh, gravitate between is the first one, the classical premillennial view. And this one. The amillennial view, or what they would say the inaugurated millennium, meaning it has been inaugurated. This thousand years, kind of put quotes around it, this thousand years has begun with the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ and, um, and then extends to his second coming. So you have Satan bound, thousand years, uh, Satan released, final battle. All of that is happening concurrent with Christ's resurrection. Okay, so let me, let me just say, you can hold to any of these views. All four views are within the realm of, of orthodoxy. Okay? None, none of these views are, are heretical. Um, I, I have some quibbles, some pretty strong quibbles with some of the other ones. Um, but none of these. You can hold any of them. So let me go through the passage again. However... And give you the, uh, the two views that I think are the strongest. And then um, let's look at what those might mean for us. Okay? Everybody cool with that? Any, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to get a feel for like, the, the situation in the room here with this, these views. Um, and so let me, let me first go through and let's unpack the premillennial view. The classic premillennial view. Uh, which dates back, this view dates back to the very earliest centuries. The, the, the second and third century, people were um, had this view. And so back to the premillennial view then, classic premillennial view, um, you would have then the Satan being bound. Uh, so all of this is taking place in the future then. So that's, let's keep that in mind. So what you're reading in Revelation chapter 20 is taking place in reference to our future and is not only that, but it would be they would see uh, chapter 20 verses one through six as um, following chronologically what happens in chapter 19. Now, look back in chapter 19 at the end of chapter 19 verses 11 through 21. You have the depiction of this final battle we talked about. 
uh, a little um, last week. Chapter 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on it that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And we saw that this is Jesus. This is Jesus coming, making his return to set up his kingdom and to make war against those who were fighting against him. So the imagery of of him with his robe dipped in blood and he was a um, he is the divine warrior it's talked about in the old testament we looked at all of this last week the premillennials would say ah but uh, so chapter 20 follows on sequentially chronologically after that so um so what you see in then chapter 20 is you see then you see an angel coming down from heaven and he has the key to the bottomless pit. He seizes the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And then threw him into the pit and sealed it over him so that he's not able to deceive the nations any longer. And then you have the thrones are set up on earth, the dead coming to life. And then notice what happens again in verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan is released from his prison. He will go out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. They marched over the plains of the earth and surrounded the camp and the saints, the beloved city. But fire came from down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they were tormented day and night forever. So here, then in the premillennial view, you have almost two battles. If, if verses 7 through 10 follows on, it's at the end of the thousand years. And premillennials would see chapter 20 following sequentially from what happens in chapter 19. Then you have two battles. You have Christ coming. He's on his horse, the white horse, and he's dripped in blood. And then Satan is bound. Then you have a thousand year reign on earth. And then you have another battle that comes at the end of this. Okay. So what does this mean for us in, from a premillennial perspective? What, is that, what does that mean for us for premillennial? Well, it, we could have great assurance that um, all of this is in the future. Satan's binding is, is in the future. Christ will set up a, a reign on earth for a thousand years. Uh, but at the end of that thousand years, Christ is going to release him from his prison. And then there will be another battle, another war. As the he will go out into the world and deceive a bunch of nations into leading into a final rebellion against Christ. And he will be defeated. So I guess that what it would mean for us from a premillennial, what would be the application for us? Um, that. There is going to come a time when Christ will come and he will reign on earth. We could take great assurance in that. It's not happening yet. I don't think we'll see it. This is why I don't think that the post-millennial view uh, really works. I don't think you're going to see a reign of Christ and his kingdom on earth before uh, Christ comes. No, that there is going to be a time where Christ is going to come and he is going to 
to lock up Satan and set up his kingdom, the long spoken of kingdom on earth. But at the end of that, Satan will be released and then there will be a final battle. But we could take great assurance in knowing that Christ will set up his kingdom on earth. Okay, that's the premillennial view. And there's some strength to that. Now let me give the kind of the amillennial uh, perspective on this then. If, as we noted, chapter 20 follows chronologically from what we see in the end of chapter 19, uh, then we have two battles, like the premillennial view does. On the other hand, as we have seen throughout Revelation, you see this, what we, the fancy term was, recapitulation. The retelling of basic events throughout history with a lot of imagery and symbolism, and then told again, and then told again, and then told again in a different way, right? We've seen this repeatedly throughout Revelation. And so it's possible that this, what we see in chapter 20, what he's describing in chapter 20, although it comes vision-wise after what he sees in 19, about this final battle. It could be possible that what we see in the beginning of chapter 20, the first six verses, is chronologically prior to this. And so some, uh, so instead of seeing the battle that we saw in Revelation chapter 19 as a first battle when Christ comes, and then the second battle that we see in Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 10, as a second battle, you would see those two depictions of the same battle in, um, in just different ways. Now, let me show you what I mean here by how, um, how the, this battle is depicted. Notice again, uh, go back to uh, Revelation chapter 6. Okay, we, and again, we've seen this before when you have the opening of the seven seals and on the sixth seal with the opening of the sixth seal. On chapter six, verse 12, right? When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake, earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. And the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves among the rocks, calling on the mountains, fall on us, fall on us, for, uh, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? We saw that all of the Old Testament references, allusions in this passage, those are all speaking of the day when the Lord returns, Christ coming back. So here you have this kind of depiction of the wrath going out, making war against all of the kings who set themselves up against them, right? We've seen this. So back in chapter six, we see this depiction Earthquake, sky rolled up like a scroll. This is all the day. This is all Christ's coming. And it's told to us in chapter six. 
Then you see it again with the seventh uh, trumpet. Uh, the um, sixth trumpet, excuse me. Chapter 9, verse 12. Okay, and look at the imagery here. You have these other nations and other kingdoms coming to make war against Christ. The sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice of the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel as the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Notice in verse 16, the number of the mounted troops was twice times 10,000, 10,000. I heard their number. This is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates of color, you know, and this, as it goes on down, they're going and this is the warfare imagery. Notice it kind of comes at the end of each of the, the sixth, sixth seal and also at the sixth trumpet. And so we've already seen this pattern that they're, uh, multiple times in this vision where it's describing the same event in different ways and with greater escalation. And so we've seen we shouldn't maybe, you know, we could see Revelation as this entire vision as a sequence and this happened and this happened, this happened. It all happened in this chronological order. Or you could see it as like he's retelling the story and stacking it from all of these different perspectives. And I think there's a good case to see how that is happening here. That what you see at the end of chapter 20, this final battle, is actually corresponding with Jesus coming on his white horse and his robe dipped in blood in chapter 19. It's possible. So there's, so there's one bit of evidence that suggests maybe, maybe this is uh, the view in play. Here's the second one. And this is an interesting piece. Um, notice the description of Satan that's given in chapter 20. Verse 2. And he seized the dragon. So this great angel coming down from heaven. And so then in this view, this would kind of chronologically happen prior to, even though it's described in his vision after chapter 19, it's coming prior to verse 11 and 19. Okay, just kind of think of it this way, perhaps. And he seized the dragon and the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Notice those four terms piled right on top of one another. The dragon that we've seen all throughout Revelation is that ancient serpent, which is a reference to uh, Satan in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, who is the devil, the accuser, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it. So because, well, then you're like, well, wait, if Satan is bound, how could he be kind of active in the world today? Well, what does it say he's, he's actually bound from doing? Verse 3, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years are ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Now, notice that this resembles very much what we've seen already in chapter 12. So go to chapter 12, verse 9. You might remember this back from Christmas time. I think this was like the week before Christmas. We looked at the story of the woman or this vision of the woman and the dragon, the woman who gave birth to the male child, right? 
chapter 12, the, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun. And we saw that this is the, the true Israel, the covenant community, the Old Testament saints uh, of whose line the Messiah comes, gives birth to um, a son, a male child. She was pregnant, crying out in birth pains giving birth verse three and another sign appeared in heaven a great red dragon with seven heads ten horns and on his head seven diadems his tail took swept down a third of the stars verse five uh, the dragon st stood before the woman in verse four was about to give birth so that when she bore her child he might devour it and then you have jesus here in verse five so she gave birth to a male child who is to rule all the nations with an iron with a rod of iron but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Remember, this is the resurrection of Christ. Okay. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she would uh, has a place prepared by God in which she will be nourished for 1,260 days. And then what do you see happening in verse 7? Now a, a war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon and his, his angels fought back. And he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, just like what we saw in Revelation chapter 20. Now, what does it says? The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. Again, the stacking of the exact same four terms that we see in Revelation chapter 20. And I think this is deliberate. And then notice what he is uh, what he is described as. He is the deceiver of the whole world. He is thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard in a loud voice saying, now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have has come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and of the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. So there's some interesting connections here with what he's saying. This imagery of Satan kind of being thrown down, bound in chains, and so that he cannot deceive the nations any longer. And if John is, uh, or Jesus, is clearly connecting this to the same four terms used of the dragon, the ancient serpent, the devil and Satan here, who is thrown out of heaven and thrown to earth, that there's maybe a connection between those two. Also using the language of deceived and deceiving. This is what the uh, amillennial view is suggesting. Okay? Again, you don't have to agree with it. I just find it's interesting. What they're suggesting is this binding of Satan being thrown down to earth is what happens with the coming of Christ, his crucifixion and his resurrection, where he has now demolished the strongholds on earth by his, by his resurrection, that he has bound these uh, spiritual forces from preventing the nations from hearing the gospel. This is the amillennial view. So Satan has been bound already now that doesn't mean he's completely inactive from this world i don't think that that's what revelation 20 is saying 
It's saying he's bound with a very specific purpose to no longer deceive the nations. He does not have the keys uh, of death and Hades anymore. Jesus does because of his resurrection. We saw in chapter one. And so uh, so from this perspective, then uh, Satan is bound with Christ's crucifixion and resurrection, which coincides, right? Because Satan was uh, Christ was the male child was taken up to God and then Satan was thrown down. So Satan is bound in that sense according to this view, and that this thousand years is just a term, again, symbolic term, um, describing Christ's rule on earth. The gospel will be able to go forth under the power of the preaching of the gospel because of the resurrection of Christ. And that when Christ does return, a battle will, Satan will be released and the final battle will ensue and Satan will be defeated. So again, what's the encouragement we get if we hold to the premillennial view? Well, that Jesus is going to win in the future. That Satan is active in the world today and that he has the power to deceive people. But one day Christ will set up his future reign on earth. That's what we can have confidence in. What's the practical value of the amillennial view? The practical value of the amillennial view is that Satan is bound already that Satan his ability to deceive the nations has now been restricted why because the preaching of the resurrection of Christ is now able to go throughout all of the nations and people will hear and by the power of God will hear the message they will repent of their sins and they will put faith in Christ to that extent Satan can't stop it this kind of goes along with what Jesus was telling his disciples. That, uh, that uh, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not be able to overcome it. Jesus on a couple of occasions with his disciples says, I saw the angel, the, the devil fall like lightning from the sky. Satan is bound. So what does that mean for us? If the millennial view is true, friends, go out and preach the gospel. Preach the gospel. Because Satan's power to prevent people from hearing it has, uh, uh, does not surpass Christ's power to make dead people come to life. Amen? Amen. Now, which one is true? I don't know. <laughs> Great. You're like, my pastor doesn't know anything. He ends his sermon by saying, I don't know. Um, in truth, I don't know. There's some strength to both of these two views. I have some problems with some of the, the other two views. But I, but I do think that there's really good case for both of these. I tend to gravitate toward the second one. But either, but all four views are fine. I tend to prefer, you know, to, to prefer those two. But either way, we can have this assurance: Christ will set up His kingdom, and Satan will be destroyed, and He will be bound. Praise, praise God. Or if the second one's true, 
Satan is bound. So Christ will use your testimony and your preaching of the gospel. Satan cannot thwart that if the Lord wills for that truth to to change people's lives. So go confidently. Go forward and uh, heed what it says in chapter 12 that if Satan has been thrown down to the earth and in that sense he is bound and restricted, then we could say that we can conquer him by the blood of the lamb and the word of your testimony. Satan is bound. This is true. Satan is bound and he is conquered by the word of your testimony. So friends, share that gospel. Amen. With that, let's uh, let's close in a word of prayer. Father God, we um, we admit, God, that we there's mystery in this passage. But there are some things that are very clear. And that is that your son, Jesus, is victorious. And he's not just victorious when he comes back to make war against all of the forces of evil and the devil and Satan, that ancient serpent. But that he was victorious in the cross. And that he was victorious in his resurrection. And that by his resurrection, he has already been crowned king of kings and lord of lords. And so, God, we don't... uh, We don't know for sure where we land on this passage, but we do uh, know that we could take total assurance that you win, that Satan will be defeated, and that Christ's reign will come to this earth. And for that, we give him all of our praise and all God's people said, amen and amen. Uh, If you have some questions about this uh, and would love to to talk about it, um, I'd love to to meet with you afterwards, so feel free to come on up. And uh, with that, let's stand for our closing benediction. And so, brothers and sisters, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ the King of kings and Lord of lords and the love of God, our Father and the fellowship that we have in the Holy Spirit be with all of you as you go and share your testimony of the gospel of the grace of God. Thank you.